So welcome back, everyone. I'm here with uh, the man, the myth, the legend, the <laughs> renegade, the, the creator and founder of Renegade University, one of my all-time favorite professors and I guess contrarians too, Mr. Thaddeus Russell. Ooh. I don't like that. You don't like contrarian? No. Really? Why? Uh, yeah, no, actually, uh, Camille Foster and John McWhorter just did an interview for the fifth column, and they were talking about how they both hate being called contrarians, and I completely felt them on this. It's uh, it's okay. I'm not mad at you, Drew, first of all. Thanks for having <laughs> me on. <laughs> You're welcome, man. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, it sound, to me that, that suggests that I am interested in, in only or only in taking the opposite side of you know some question that I, in other words I'm I'm just interested in being contrary not in 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 the actual positions I'm taking. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I could see that. Sometimes I mean uh, I I definitely uh, identify with just being contrary depending on hmm. well because and here's the reason why and and this is and I see you do this. Um, even if you agree with a person, if you're trying yeah. to help them with their argument. Right. And I think that's why you would probably be considered a contrarian because, you know, okay. one, one of the conversations I had with you is, um, you know, before we recorded at your at the weekend with Thaddeus Russell, um, you're in Brett's event was, you know, something that I think people struggle with with you is because you pose questions to, I think, scratch people's thinking. And it's and it's. And, and I don't think it's it's like uh, you're just doing it to cause shit. You're actually doing it to help make people rethink what they're okay. saying. That's okay. That's an, say. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Okay, you got me. So I am a contrarian. I take it back. <laughs> um, well, no, yeah. So um, as pedagogy, yeah, as a, as a pedagogue, as a teacher, yes, I am a contrarian. I do that. I've done that with my students. I do it in my work as a public, so-called public, public intellectual, I do it on my podcast. You're right. You, you did notice that. And that's correct. So yes, I, um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things I want more than anything else in this world is for people to just think better yeah, and make, and make better arguments. And so, and I feel like m the vast majority of people in our world who care about such things, um, don't do a very good job of that. And there's a lot of laziness and shortcuts, which often end up being sort of ad hominem, personal attacks or moralism, you know, someone, so-and-so is bad or such and such an argument is bad. And I just want people to be more rigorous if they're going to do this kind of work. And, um, I don't think that everyone needs to do this kind of work, but those of us who do, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the game I'm playing and I want people to play that game according to the rules. Actually, I'm actually very interested in, uh, in rules in that particular game I've chosen to play. Well, I, I, uh, I appreciate, um, I, I think it's interesting because I was saying, I like really enjoy reading Wendell Berry and I think it's mm. for that reason because like he poses like a question and then he paints the other pic side of the picture and then he tries to like really come at it from an ecological perspective. And I think, uh, a lot in that is being a contrarian, like his good friend, uh, Gene Logston, who I'm a big fan of as well. Like he was from Ohio, but he was he coined this term, the contrary farmer, and it's just, um, and, it, and he writes the same way. And I think, I think there's different forms. I mean, if you're just arguing for the sake of arguing, it's, it's completely different. And, um, so, and I, I think, and, and again, just to, to piggyback on what you said, you play by a certain set of rules. It's not, mm -hmm. you're trying to be thoughtful about it. It's not coming from a, 
well, I'm just trying to piss you off. It's like, no, let's actually think this through. Let's actually play this out. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm weird that I'm oh, weird that way. Like, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, uh, and for people that don't know, you do Wendell Berry as a child, and I think oh, yeah. some of my listeners yeah, talk about really that. appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, sort of. I, um, as I told you in LA, my my best friend growing up, and he was like, he was practically my family. Um, I his family was my family. I spent probably more time at his house than I did at my own house for a long time from like uh, sixth grade and through high school. We were thick as thieves. And his mother and father owned a poetry bookstore in Berkeley. And then his father became the editor of North Point Press. And I think they pu- they must have published Wendell Berry. That, that's probably what the connection was. And then North Point, I think it's still around, but it was bought. Now it's an imprint with a larger press, I believe. And, and Jack, the editor, is somewhere else. But um, yeah, so he they would have these dinner parties at their house, not really parties. They would just invite like an author on a regular occasion, like almost every week. It seemed like there was someone, some famous author there, like Ernest Gaines was there once, Gary Snyder, and then Wendell Berry. Reynolds Price was another one. It was really amazing. And so I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, didn't know anything about these guys, but I knew that they were, they were somebody. I knew that they were big in some way and they sort of had a presence about them. And, uh, yeah, had dinner with Wendell Berry once and hung out with him so how did, I I mean, like, how did that influence you growing up and meeting <laughs> like authors that are deep thinkers like have you ever thought about that like do you think that's what like yeah. i mean did you connect with them and that kind of pushed you to want to kind of explore mm. thought there yeah i mean you know maybe i mean i think that was part of it you know being in Ber- growing up in berkeley you're sort of around thinkers all the time right because yeah you know most people most people there are intellectual to some degree, or at least they care about politics or, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a very highly educated population there. And my parents, even though they were shitty parents, I mean, they were really good intellectuals actually. And, um, and they weren't academics, but they just, they sort of lived in the world of ideas, all of them, my stepfather, my mother and my father. And, um, so I was around it. And then of course all their friends were intellectuals or academics, lots of professors at from UC Berkeley and then, you know, just sort of the avant-garde countercultural types and political people and people who did thinking and arguing basically as a living or as a major part of their life. So yeah, the, um, the shoemakers, that was their name, Jack Shoemaker and Vicky Shoemaker. My friend was Sean Shoemaker. They, it's funny, I've never talked about them on a podcast or anywhere. Um, they sample our first time. I'm just being silly. Yeah, man, they were, they were somewhat different in that they were not, I mean, they were sort of political, but not really. I mean, they were interested, they were aesthetics, you know, they were interested in poetry, obviously and fiction and that kind of stuff. And so, um, that's, but nonetheless, they were the people they published and who they knew in that world, you know, they were intellectuals of that type, um, which I really appreciated. Like, caring for the aesthetic, you know, was something that was not a part of the rest of my world. You know, the intellectuals I knew were interested in making arguments and winning political battles and, you know, being correct and all that stuff, which is still mostly how I operate. But maybe, yeah, you're right. Now that I think about it, that was part of the, maybe the seed that was planted in me that caused me to sort of rebel in a way against, uh, rationalism and scientism and, and the, um, 
in the sort of style and approach of the left generally, really everyone in politics, but sort of the enlightenment model, um, even though I still operate within that model. Yeah. And I was saying that those are the rules of the game I was talking about, by the way, you know, if we're going to have an argument about minimum wage policy. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to follow the rules of that, of that game, um, of rational thought, evidence, argumentation, all that stuff. But I also know that that's not necessarily the truth. And I don't think it's also, I certainly don't think it's the best way to live. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not the best way to live. You know, I wish I had, I wish I had a different life sometimes. Uh, even though I love this life in a lot of ways, it's, there is a coldness and a meanness and a hardness about constantly arguing about essentially politics, you know, and I find it to be, um, impoverishing or impoverished. And I find a lot of the people who are in that world to be impoverished in that way, super smart and very effective. And I learn a lot from them, but I don't want to hang out with most of them. You know, they yeah. don't, they tend, they tend to be, and that was really my problem with academics generally. Um, is it too much analysis paralysis? Like they don't want to, yeah, well, it's fun. just, they don't like, they don't live in their bodies. Yeah. You know, their bodies are completely cut off from themselves. Uh, they don't, it literally aren't aware of what they're wearing half the time. They don't care about things like that. Like the sensual world, they may sort of, you know, dabble in it here and there, but it's not really fundamental to, to them. And in fact, they're sort of hostile to it. And they sort of spend their time disciplining themselves to sit down and read that damn boring 500 page book. Right. Um, it's work. Even if you love the, even if you love a work of history, you know, Sorry um, <laughs> my cats just that? attacked my, uh, my equipment. So you said, even if you love something and then they, yeah, I mean, I, stuff. so, you know, I, in graduate school, I had to read, of course, hundreds of history books. Right. And a lot of them I loved and I, I did love most of that. I loved it in a way, but eh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would, would choose to do that if I had a regular career, a different career. Uh, I always sort of marvel at people who I'm meeting all the time now, people like you who have like a, a whole life and a whole career or a job that they care about that they're passionate about. And then after, when they get home from work, they sit down and read a book. I mean, like a history book. I can't actually, I don't think I would do that. I don't think I could do that. I mainly, so for me, it's, I didn't start reading, I think till I was 22. Cause I was just playing mm -hmm. the game in school of, well, I figured out that if I could become a good test taker, I could kind of just bullshit through high school and get into college with uh, a high enough ACT score. And, um, but even then I went to university of Toledo as open enrollment. So, but I didn't start reading until I became an adult and it was because I was like, well, if I want to better myself, I need to read books. And then that turned into me just actually being a lot better at listening. Cause I like to be active and do stuff. So when I drive, I listen to so many books while I'm driving, you know, this is so funny. So, you know, who I interviewed yesterday, oh. uh, on his farm in the middle of nowhere, Oregon, Nick Hazelton. Nice. Love Nick. You know him. Yeah, yeah, he actually, he mentioned you actually. Um, and yeah, that came up pretty early on. I assumed that Nick had read at least all the great treatises of, you know, anarcho-capitalism, right? I was, I just assumed he had read Hayek and Rothbard, et cetera. And turns out he hasn't read any of them. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't either. I've never, uh, I've never read Ayn Rand. I've never read I know. any of that. So, I, I read some Harry yeah. Brown, but mainly it was Ron Paul. And then it was like, well, this is like, I've always had issues with authority. And I think yeah. another reason why I really, uh, 
even like I, I really appreciate your perspective because it always comes from the same place it does for me. Like because you said I'm anti-authoritarian, mm-hmm. and I I was I think I well I was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder and <laughs> ADD, and so I didn't I did not handle school well. Like I I did okay and I played the game, but then it just for me like once it was pretty much once they put me on ADD meds. And then I, I couldn't get in my body. That was the weird thing. It like it locked me in my head. And then mm. once I got out of ADD meds, then it then I actually started to read a lot more. And then I actually mm. started to figure out who I was and everything. And I wasn't I didn't really care about playing that game because I'd realized I'd been lied to. So um, getting back to Nick though, like I think yeah, it's he's a he's such a smart kid, and it's uh it's so cool. Like I, I had never even heard of Edward Abbey until I was reading a Wendell Berry book, and then Nick's like, "Oh, you got to read the Monkey Wrench Game Gang and yeah. Desert Solitaire." So I think it's I think his influences are are similar with mine because it wasn't necessarily the I I just have never I mean to me it's 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 never been like I I never wanted to embrace the dogma of a lot of the libertarian ideals of like objectivism and things like that because to me it was. Well, it's it, it. You don't need to go that far. It's just simple. Like, why do you have a right to implement your authority on somebody else? And to me, it's just mm. simple. Like, I couldn't figure out why. And I think, I think even when it comes to leadership or the way I just live my life, like, no, we're gonna. If if I want this to work, we have to come to the same conclusion and work together. It can't be. Well, you're doing this because I told you so. Because I'm I'm higher in the pay grade or anything like that. Like that shit always mm-hmm. pissed me off. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was thinking more about this thing about reading versus listening, you know, bring how the means by which you bring information into your mind. Uh, and I was really struck by that when Nick said that to me, cause I just assumed he had read books because for everybody until basically your generation and certainly for his generation, but you know, it was just, that's what you did. There was, well, there really were no alternatives, but there was also a major, major sort of, um, uh, moralistic assumption about reading and books, which is just frankly, just stupid. You know, I mean, people just assume that's the only way you can be an intelligent person, a knowledgeable and intelligent and serious person is to read. And I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, so this kid, Nick Hazleton, you know, who was like blowing me away when he was 17 years old, 16 years old in terms of his knowledge and his ability to process the information he had in his mind, um, I'm, when he said he never read, I actually had to check myself. I thought, oh shit, maybe Nick isn't as smart as I thought, right? <laughs> <laughs> Just because of that, really. Um, and I guarantee you that is the way most academics would think about him if they heard that. And they'd be like, oh, well, that's why he's an anarcho-capitalist, right? Because he doesn't really, he hasn't really read. He's not a real intellectual. But I, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while, especially since I've gotten into podcasting and sort of been introduced to this whole world out there um, of people who are like you, who really have remade themselves and become just straight up intellectuals of a very high level um, through mostly listening and, and instead of reading. I, I think that it, we need to get over it. And I think that as Nick informed me, here you go, you know, reading is a fairly new thing yeah. in society. I mean, it's only a few hundred years really when since most people have read. Um, and in terms of reading serious books, like what we're talking about, uh, really a hundred years you know, um, it's only been about a hundred years when, since, um, when most people have, um, most people who are intellectuals read books. So I think we may, I think we're at the dawn of a new age in many ways, but I think that's one, one way. I think that there are a lot of people who are sort of proving that you can operate at an extremely high level 
um, of intellectual sophistication uh, without ever having read a book. And in fact, what I said to Nick was, you know, I think, I think it actually makes more sense too to, to listen to podcasts and so listen to whatever audiobooks or whatever it is, um, because it's more efficient. So, you know, when I was in graduate school and reading those hundreds of books, I sort of went into them, into those books, just kind of like, like I was grazing in a field. I didn't know what I was looking for. I just assumed this person writing this book had something important to tell me. I didn't know what it was. I sort of learned how to like suss out the argument, figure out what their argument was, but it would often take me a hundred or 200 pages to figure out what that was even. And then, then I had to determine whether it meant anything to me, whether it was important to me. So for Nick and probably for you and for me in the last 10 or 20 years, you know, there's a project we have going into it, going into the thing that we're reading or listening to. We want to fix, solve a problem or, or learn a particular thing or figure something out. Right. So for me, it was like, what is socialism? Like when I was a kid, you know, and for Nick, it was, what is anarcho capitalism and how do I apply it to the real world? And for you, it was a various other things, but like, so that sort of clears away all the, the rubble you have to cl- have to climb over. If you're reading a book from start to finish, Yeah, you can go straight to it. So if you know what you want to, if you know what you want to learn, you can find your podcast that deals with that thing specifically and you can hit, you know, fast forward 30 seconds whenever it's irrelevant to you and you can get right to the the stuff that you're looking for. And so I think you can actually become a serious intellectual uh, faster through the means that Nick employs and that you employ and that I, apparently a lot of people are employing. That's interesting. I, uh, I've never thought of it like that. I, I don't consider myself an intellectual. I, I remember during the Q and a, when I first talked to you, you were like, Oh, another podcaster. You guys are dangerous. I was like, <laughs> Is that what I said? <laughs> yeah. I was like, how are we dangerous? But then it's because it's like, we, I think I heard you later say it's cause we dare to ask questions and we look for the answers ourselves. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That's what I meant. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. There's this whole revolution happening that only some people are aware of. In fact, pretty much only the people who are in the revolution are aware of it. Even actually a lot of you guys aren't aware of it. And I said this to Rogan himself, like the king of it, you know, he, he didn't really seem to get it. Like there's a big thing happening now. I think I said this to you guys in LA. I said to someone there, you know, it's, there's a huge thing happening right now. And the people who listen to NPR aren't even aware of it. My mother has no idea, like until I told her and she was like, what? how many people listen to these things and what are their politics and what is this about? I mean, and it's sort of hard to explain. It's like, well, there's this guy, he's this commentator for the ultimate fighter and he has a podcast and you know, <laughs> what the hell does that mean? Yeah. But, um, but for whatever reason, him, Joe and you know, a few other people kind of got the ball rolling and have, you know, there is a kind of everybody in this world has some connection to him and that podcast. So it's really crucial, but we've all gone our own ways and we've all sort of developed these followings and sometimes businesses. And, but more importantly, we've developed a, um, Hmm, what do I want to say? I want to say it's an alternative public sphere, um, or an alternative public square, right? The public square used to be owned, controlled, managed, dominated by professors, essentially people connected directly to the elite universities. And, and there's they're still doing their thing over there and but they're becoming they control less and less because we have simply established our own square in a different place and we're just saying different things and there are many many more people who can speak in it and are speaking in it and but the thing is the old public square seems to be unaware of this one um but the, i think that we might even be bigger now 
and more, I think, more influential and more important. And there's more power. So Hunter Motz and I were talking about this. I mean, he and I are kind of in the same, we have the same kind of uh, meta project going on here, which is, you know, we see an enormous, enormous power, potential power there. Like if Joe Rogan ran for Congress, he would win. Yeah. I mean, if he decided to really heavily endorse some presidential candidate in 2020, they would probably win. It almost doesn't even matter who. I mean, certainly if he if he really got behind big time, the Democrat or the Republican, doesn't matter, they would win. I can almost guarantee that, right? I mean, that's he's got millions and millions of people who yeah. do what he says, you know, or who are certainly going to lean toward what he says. And and then there are sort of all the ancillary Joe Rogan's, you know, I'm kind of one of them, I suppose. Right. I mean, and if, and if several of us got behind a particular candidate, not even I'm, I'm five to 10 of, you know, major podcasters got behind a particular candidate, I can damn near guarantee that they would win by a landslide. Right. I mean, especially if so, they're, they're popular independent ones. Cause there's certain ones like Marin has uh, like comedy central backs, Marin, uh, right. and he's got a lot of downloads, but you know, it's also like, he's, he's not that different than NPR. Like, you know, like, no. and, and I think right. the ones, people like you, Brett, uh, J- Rogan, especially, and, and it's something mm-hmm. that, you know, I've talked to, um, I mean, Rogan wields a heavy, he has a heavy sword that he's afraid to wield at times. And I think sure. like, uh, he had, he changed. So when the, when the, after, I mean, an example too of this, just cause we're, we're on the, com- the topic is. When the McGregor Mayweather fight happened, somebody in the New York Times clearly hadn't written the fight and said, uh, Floyd Mayweather dismantles McGregor easily. And, and Rogan goes, <laughs> did you even watch the fight? Like, that's not what happened. <laughs> and then they quickly changed it on the website. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and, and yeah. so it's, it's interesting because I, I, I see, you know, it, I see with Rogan, um, like, his, huh. like his channels, I'm pretty sure he's mentioned on his show that he's demonetized. And it's like, man, if you really wanted to 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 create make a stink about it, I bet you could make that change immediately. Um, but I, I think I think with Rogan when he took down Mencia, it really messed with his like it it really kind of messed with his career, and and that's why he actually started the podcast, and that's when he built this whole thing because he <clears> took down a money making machine for large companies, and they were not happy about it. So I think like with him, I think he he's he's worried to wield the sword and I don't, I don't really blame him. Like, cause that is like a, it's a weird, cause I think when you, when you start something and you don't intend it to be, become what it is, I think it's, it's kind of humbling and, and scary for him as well, which is also makes Rogan likable. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he's just not interested in doing that either. I mean, he's, no. I think he's clearly more interested in exploring and figuring things out. And I mean, that's, to me, that's how I see what he's doing. He, he's just got some curiosity and he wants to get some answers. Right. And so he's kind of, he's uh, got several different projects going on all the time, but like he wants to just get to the bottom of these things. And that's pretty much it. I mean, I think he's interested in changing the world in particular ways. Like, oh, well, as I told him directly on the show, I mean, you know, I think he's a major reason why marijuana is legalized in most states now. I think he's a major reason. Um, yeah. He was he was one of the first people and certainly the biggest person to come out for it. And he did it hard. He went hard on that. And it's great. So, yeah, I'm glad he's not going. He's endorsing candidates or anything like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but anyway, so, I mean, I think that that, you know, and you're a part of it, too. I mean, it's a it's a big deal. 
it's a big, big deal. Oh, and, and so Marin, yeah, I, I started out in podcasting, meaning as a, as a listener, as a fan, as a Mark Marin fan, I, mean, I hate to admit it, but like, I really did like his thing. And in fact, that's the original inspiration for unregistered for my podcast, the form of it, not the content, but the way he would talk to someone in a particular industry, Hollywood in this case, or comedy, right. And then, but then come back to their, or go back in, in their, through the biography and start to connect their biography to their current career. You know, I thought, Oh, if someone did that with political people, it would be awesome. And no one had. And so that's kind of what I'm doing here. But, um, but he, you're right. He is totally of the NPR, what I would call establishment world. And there were t the two, there were two moments when I got turned off to Marin. One was when he had Obama on, which was sort of obvious. It's like, okay. And didn't ask him any difficult questions, right? Yeah. At all. You know? And so, okay. So dude, you are, you're here to serve what we already have. You're here to serve what already exists. So there is nothing fundamentally new about what you're doing. It's just, you have, you use curse words and you maybe talk about sex a little bit more and your own personal life a little bit more than they do on NPR. But basically you, you're right. The, the content is essentially the same. But actually, it was worse. The the thing where, when I decided to, I, he was not, he was no longer interesting to me, was when he did the thing with Terry Gross. I was like, yeah, okay. And they were just jerking each other off, basically, <laughs> on stage. I mean, it was, you know, again, it's like if there was some kind of friction there, then I would have been much more interested. But he's not interested at all. And, of course, he also thinks the Trump is Satan and that we are living in the worst time in human history. And, um so, so again, it's just, it's like, yeah, that's what the New York times is saying. So why there's nothing really new there, right? You're right. Um, he, what I think he does is he gives, he gives the establishment types, the NPR types sort of, um, a little bit of, uh, authenticity cred, you know, they can say, yeah, I listen to Mark Maron, so I'm cool, you know, cause he's kind of like this grungy dude who, who podcasts out of his garage and he, you know, talks about his dick or whatever every didn't once he, in a while. Uh, didn't he block you on Twitter? Cause weren't you he in did. his neighborhood or something? You yeah. In his neighborhood and you tried to like. Didn't you say something to him about his Obama <laughs> podcast and like I did way to softball questions? Yeah, he lived. His house is about mm, like a mile, like one mile from where I used to live near. He, he lives right above Occidental College. And I used to live like just on the other side of Occidental College in Eagle Rock, California, in L.A. Um, yeah. And when he had Obama on, I tweeted at him a couple of times. I forget exactly what I said, but it was um, I said, what would what would George Carlin say? about a comedian who has a president of the United States on and never asks some hard questions. Uh, and that was something to that effect. And yeah, blocked. <laughs> well, he can't, he can't actually, I think that's like just the issue with, with the establishment in general is they don't, they, they don't want to take hard questions seriously. They think, well, if I don't address it, then it's not real. And it's like it, sometimes you just need to let people talk. I, I, I mean, you talk about it a lot and I think it's, uh, like, I mean, you got me turned on to Jim Goad's podcast and like Jim Goad does the opposite. Like, I, it's kind of fascinating because he brings up points, but he's <clears> the first to say, like, I'm not really a big group guy. Like, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I want to talk to you guys because nobody else does. But I, you know, I, it, it's he's got an inter, he's got an interesting perspective. But I think um, <laughs> I think that that's kind of it is, uh, you know, if, if types like Richard Spencer and you've said this a lot, too. If we just let them talk, they're no longer dangerous. Like it's not a it's not a scary thing to let them talk and then it's not but because we're so afraid of getting hurt feelings, it's like 
Instead, we make what they have to say dangerous when, and then it gives them power. And I think it's so, it's, it's so obvious to me that it's just like, yeah, just let people talk, like hear them out. And you'll just be like, yeah, they're, they're a crazy person or, you know, I don't even want to say a crazy person cause it's dismissive or that's mm-hmm. just their perspective. And it's not something we necessarily, so why did this perspective get created? And it's like, well, it's generated from the opposite spectrum of the identity politics. And I think it's, um, it's just, it's just weird. I think, you know, something Thomas Sowell always says is there's not a real solution. There's just, you know, trade-offs and compromises. And I think, I think, you know, looking at it from that lens, it's like, yeah, I mean, when you, when you think that you're, you're creating a solution, there's a trade-off to where, you know, the poor, I think working class white people feel alienated and they feel disenfranchised. So then they, you know, they, they catered it. They flocked to people like Richard Spencer. And mm-hmm. it's, and it's a weird, and to me, and this is something I was saying to you is it's just like, man, like if, if they knew, I mean, just if, if working class people knew that their cultures were so similar and that they had a lot more in common than they did in, in difference, like it, they, they could elect any, any politician they wanted to. I mean, but it's, it's the, the, the mm-hmm. ideas divide and conquer. So I think, you know, these identity politics help, you know, I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but like the people that are in power and it's, oh, it's, yeah. and so, um, but yeah, I, I, I just like, to me, that's something I'm stuck on. I don't even know why I got down this rabbit hole thad, but it's just like, you know, I think growing up, you know, working class white person, like, and then going to the suburbs when I, when we moved out of Toledo down here, it was like, I have nothing in common with any of these people. But then mm-hmm. I did with the poor minorities where that were in the school too. And those were always my friends. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I don't know where that came from, Thad. I just, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, no. Um, so you said people flock to Richard Spencer. I don't think they did. Well, they don't, don't flock think. to him, but I mean, I think it's just the certain really disenfranchised people do, but yeah, that's not fair to say that they flock to him. But, well, or, but this is, this is getting to an answer, uh, okay. to your question, to Sorry. your problem. And so I think that, so the question is why, right? Because, so first of all, you know, if you were to li- read the New York times <laughs> and listen to NPR, or read the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, you would assume that we would be in Nazi America by now, right? I mean that, you know, and over the last year, if you were to just pay attention to sort of mainstream media only, you would, you know, there's no question Richard Spencer would be the Fuhrer of the United States. I mean, they, they talk about it as if, you know, especially after Charlottesville as if, you know, there's just any, you know, the Nazis are rising and here they come and oh my God, it's, they're going to take over. Um, totally absurd on the face of it, if you know anything about the actual evidence of the numbers. So then the question is why, why, why haven't they? Right. Because they've been given all this free publicity. Can you imagine, imagine if your podcast were mentioned in the media as much as Richard Spencer has been, and and he probably has fewer followers than you do, Drew. (laughs) He probably does. I mean, if you counted them up, I bet in terms of like actual fans, like real, I doubt it, there's more than a few thousand people who so you think really it's more like the Howard Stern effect of like pe- mainly people are listening to him to get outraged. Oh, if you were to the so I follow him on Twitter. Yeah. Okay, I'm I have no idea, but I'll bet you a majority of his Twitter followers are people like me who are just curious or hate him, right? And they're not his fans. Um, so that gets once you do that, take away those people, he's got a pretty tiny following, um, and certainly nowhere near. Um, a following he would require to establish his white homeland or whatever he wants to do. His, but, his um, no state, but he could though. Right. I mean, so yeah. in Europe, 
there are Richard Spencers who do have large followings and who are, in fact, on the verge of taking control of countries or at least their governments. So the question is why? And I think that I think that the reason is because a lot of people to some degree, a lot of white working class people to some degree are like you in that they may not know it as well as you do. They're not as conscious of it, but I think that they simply do identify with minorities in particular genuine ways. And I think that sort of stops them from going all the way with their racism, um, or even starting in some cases with the racism. But so yeah, actually Jim Goat and I, who was on my show, talked about this a lot because this is a subject he's very interested in, right? He wrote the, the redneck manifesto and, um, for him and for me, our experiences with white working class folks in particular white working class people in the South in the deep South is that they are, their racism is superficial that they will say nigger for sure. Or they might even say, you know, I hate niggers, <laughs> but they'll have a black girlfriend yeah. <laughs> or they will have had a black girlfriend or they will have had sex with many black women without thinking twice about it. Um, they will have, they're much more likely to have black friends than, uh, professors at Harvard who, you know, um, they're much more likely to have a lot listen more to blacks in their zip listen code. to hip hop, right. Um, to use black slang, to identify, essentially identify as black or as what we would consider to be black, right? Black with blackness. I no doubt about it. I mean, if you, if you know anything, if you have any experience with like white working class people in the South, it's like, especially younger people, like under 40, I mean, they all talk black basically. Well, I even (laughs) say in the Rust Belt and in the Midwest, man, I think it's the same thing. Like something, um, you had that guy on your show and it was basically saying that there's more racism because nigger jokes are searched on Google and it's like, mm. man, that's like a, unfortunately, I think it's deep in part of like private working class white guy culture. And, and I guarantee if you looked up Helen Keller jokes or blonde jokes or any tasteless jokes that you could find in those tasteless joke books, those numbers would be through the roof too. I don't, I don't yeah. know why, but that's, it's very much so a part of the Rust Belt culture to have off color colored jokes and something Hunter even said is it's you know it's a it's a tool like it's a tool to bond and it's right. like something stupid that people do and it's really harmless and and you know I've heard people say you know they might think that there's more racists around but it's like you know if you're if you're if you're stopped on the side of the road with a flat tire you're going to have a couple people stop to help you no matter right. what your race is just because it's kind of like well that's what I was raised to do right and here's the other major difference between white working class people in the south or even in Ohio, um, and you know, the bi-coastal elites, um, which is that the bi-coastal elites talk about race all the time. (laughs) They're obsessed with it. They talk about it all the time. And I think white working class people generally don't, I mean, except for the occasional, you know, get that nigger out of here or whatever. Um, it's not like it doesn't occupy their minds the way it occupies the minds of the professors and the, and the op-ed writers and the commentators on NPR who, Apparently, and I know them because I kind of am one of them and I come from there, you know, I, I know this, they, they are obsessed with it. Race is the biggest thing in their minds. They're always obsessed with it. And we also know that they are afflicted with guilt, that they go way out of their way to uh, make amends to black people and to treat the black people like they are these wounded objects, 
objects of sympathy. They patronize them because of that. They treat them essentially like children in all sorts of ways. Um, and you know, give them every, every benefit and leg up possible. They bend all the way over backwards to do whatever they say and never contradict them in public. And they talk, 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 talk about race, 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 race. And so that tells me that we, when we're looking at racism in America, we tend to be looking at the wrong place. I, I a hundred percent agree. And I think, you know, one thing, it's funny people that always are calling people racist. If you look at their zip code, I guarantee there's a very small percentage of not white people or they lived in a gated community or something like that. And it's like, well, no. And they put a sign out in front of their house. that says all lives or you know, black lives matter. And, and there's a list and everybody's welcome in my home. But then it's like, well, let's look at your neighborhood. Like, so they're welcome in your home. They're just not welcome on your street. Like it's, uh, I think, you know, for me, I, I live, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I don't live in an, it's not a bad neighborhood, but it's, I mean, my house is $45,000. It's not like I, you know, I'm, I'm living in some, some, some neighborhood where it's, it's, it's very diverse. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a guy who owns a, a painting company and he owns two houses on my street. He's Mexican. There's a older black couple. And then the rest of them are probably white people from Appalachian descent, like people that moved up, you know, read and write in route 23 from, Kentucky or West Virginia to come up here and get jobs. And so it's, it's, it's totally different. And a lot of times, just in my experience, the people that are saying that it's racist or whatnot, they will get so offended if you call Hillary Clinton a pig because you're insulting women. But if it's Sarah Sanders and Sarah Sanders is, is, uh, is you don't like her politics or her tax plan, it's perfectly okay for me to post a meme comparing her to uncle Fester from, uh, mm -hmm the Adams family. And there's mm -hmm. just a, there's just such a, there's such a blatant hypocrisy to where you're no longer a person or you're no longer a part of the far protected uh, minority class. If you disagree with our politics or you don't fall in line. Yeah. Yeah. The history of racism in this country now that, you know, is, is middle-class it's middle-class. So where you're sitting right now was the, one of the centers of the Ku Klux Klan in in the 1920s, the sort of the big Ku Klux Klan, when the Klan had five to six million members was the 1920s. And Southern Ohio, you're kind of in central, but you know, from Columbus down right there, I don't know if you know this, you know this about the Klan? Yeah, the Southern Klan Ohio? started yeah. in uh, Cincinnati, I'm pretty sure. I think. It's well, it started in Georgia, but yes, it became, its major centers of power were Southern Ohio and Indiana. And in fact, they controlled the legislature in Indiana, but they were big in Michigan, in Detroit, in, you know, sort of cities in the Midwest was their real stronghold and Oregon where I'm sitting right now too. They essentially controlled the legislature for a couple of years here too. Um, now there is a consensus among historians about that clan that it was dentists and doctors and lawyers and merchants and shopkeepers and factory owners. It was overwhelmingly middle class and what the Marxists would call petty bourgeois sort of small business owners. Yeah, it was not, it was not rednecks and crackers. It no. was not. Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, and then in the, the very same time in the twenties was the peak of what we call scientific racism, right? Which I talked a lot about in LA at Renegade University. It, um, this was right. The science of racism, which was being taught at Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and UC Berkeley and Stanford and everywhere at the time, you know, that, you know, the 
world is made up of multiple races of human beings and that they are of differing value and abilities and Africans are at the bottom and Jews are a separate race and the Irish were a separate race and Italians are a separate race and an inferior race and the Northern Europeans are the superior race, all that shit, right? So that wasn't created by crackers and rednecks either, obviously. It was created by Thomas Jefferson and professors in the 19th century and it was taught by professors into the 1930s and 40s. It's all middle and upper class, really, the history of racism in this country. It's all middle and upper class. Um, so, and in fact, you know, we don't know who, who led the lynchings, the great lynchings of the 1880s, 90s, and 1900s. But um, uh, uh, since we know that the Klan was overwhelmingly middle class, I'm betting, I'm betting, and I bet most historians would agree with me, that most of those people were middle class people. They weren't, they weren't the dudes with the lacking teeth and chewing tobacco sitting on their porches for the most part. Um, so, yeah. And then if you look at the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s in the South, who was the real problem? I mean, mostly it was the cops. It was the cops. It was the sheriffs and the police in Birmingham and the police in Atlanta. Right. And well, that's those are middle class jobs. I mean, they may come from the working class, but that's that's a middle class person. That's what you you, you know, that's a that's a middle class aspiration is to be a police officer. You get a, a solid um, salary and a pension and you serve the community and you're a good citizen. That's all middle class. So, yeah, man, it's not uh, it's not it's not the rednecks. It's not your people. No. Right? Well, and I think, too, what I, I don't like. So a lot of people don't know, um, you know, because something I, I definitely want us to touch on since you, you study labor unions quite a bit and. Mm -hmm. um I've just kind of studied it on my own just because, you know, my both my grandpa was the president of the railroad union he was in until he retired, like towards the end when he retired. And then my other grandfather was uh, was a president of a local pipe pipe fitters union. So they you know, he worked on the Alaskan pipeline. And so they I mean, they had good union jobs. But like the thing what a lot of people don't know, like kind of about the history of unions, from my understanding, unions were kind of formed not only. Because, you know, the, the Scots-Irish or the hillbillies were pretty much, you know, slaves of the coal mines. I mean, you got paid a, a you got paid on coal vouchers, which you could only use at the, the coal mine store. And I think, you know, Mate Juan kind of shows a, a good mm -hmm. history of that. And then they sent up black workers to because the white workers weren't going to do it anymore. And it was and, and essentially there's kind of this history of pinning the working class against one another and so unions were kind of formed not just to to protect them and get wages, but it kind of seemed like they were formed to keep blacks out as well. And I know sure. minimum wage was was formed so black people couldn't work their way up the uh, the the economic kind of scale or the economic ladder, because a mm -hmm. lot of those jobs that were eliminated, like uh, you know, like 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 somebody that could go work at a gas station and learn a, a trade of auto mechanics while you're washing windshields and filling up gas you know filling up gas for cars not only was that that not only that it affect like teenage boys but it also affected you know minorities and that had yep. been here for a while so I, I think it's it's this weird um unions especially now are interesting because now you know back in the day both grandfathers told me that if you were in the union and you were showing up late to work they would draw straws and basically the straws were drawn to see who was going to kick the shit out of you because they knew that you probably had a wife and kids that you had to feed 
And by you looking bad, you made us all look bad, and we're all working in this together. So these companies treat us with respect. And it was this weird, this weird thing back then. And mm-hmm. now it's like, as my dad said, who just retired from Jeep, is they just protect lazy people. And that's mm-hmm. like, and it, and it's kind of a weird thing on how unions have lost their power because of, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing. I mean, what do you think of unions from what they used to be to what they are now? <laughs> yeah, it's my past life. I used to say um, uh, as a labor historian, I yeah. When you're a socialist, that's kind of what you're supposed to do. If you're going to be an academic, you got to study labor, of course, because the working class is going to bring the revolution. Marx told us so. That's the only serious thing. That's the only thing that really matters. Everything else is just eh, ephemeral, you know. Um, so I did that, and here's here's a quick history of labor unions in the United States, okay, in terms of race, because which is what you brought up. And I think it's really important. So the first unions, labor unions in the United States were what we call craft unions. So they were, they were unions that were small and they were focused on their membership came from one particular craft, like shoe makers in Lynn, Massachusetts, or textile factory workers in Lowell, Massachusetts, right? So in those, and these were all in the Northeast because that's where the first industries were, the first factories were. Um, and of course the people who worked in those places were all white because it was New England at the time in the 18th century or 19th century. And, um, then, so they were around for a while and they were very important and powerful and they sort of won higher wages for various reasons we can get into, but you know, um, but they were all white, not because they were racist yet because they they didn't need to be racist. There were no non-whites around, um, the only people in those industries were white. Then industrial unions, what we call industrial unions, were established at the turn of the 20th century. And those were in the big industries, like eventually your dad's industry, automobiles, which was developed a little bit later. But by the 1920s, the automobile industry was starting to be unionized and rubber workers and machinists and that was a new wave. And now those industries were filled mostly uh, with immigrants, right? So those were Italians and Russians and Hungarians and Greeks and all those people. And so they were the first people to be indist- uh, to be unionized on a mass scale. And the, those were big unions. And that, that became the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. Whereas the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, represented the old craft unions. The CIO was was run by sort of what we would call left liberal types, Bernie Sanders types, and a few socialists and even a handful of communists. And the CIO and the industrial unions became huge by the 1930s, in fact, and really were an essential part of the Democratic Party. And you couldn't really get elected president if you didn't have the CIO on your side. And they were the ones who were responsible for disciplining the workers in the in the defense factories during World War II, which guaranteed production of tanks and machine guns to win the war, et cetera. So now those unions were full of, as I said, of immigrants, mostly immigrants or second generation immigrants. And those immigrants were considered not white entirely until World War II. Um, and they, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that they became white by the 1940s was that employers, as you were referring to with Matewan, discovered that, um, that they could bring, that they could bring black workers up from the South who were much cheaper and replace these, these workers in their, in their factories who were Italians or Slavs or whatever. Um, so that created this division 
among the workers around race, a lot of these workers, these immigrant workers saw these blacks as the enemy for, you know, not totally irrational reasons. And that was one of the ways in which Italians and Greeks and Slavs became white. Actually, they started to see that their enemy was black, not white, not the white employer. And then for other reasons, by the 1940s, they, they were fully, they became fully assimilated and were considered in the U.S. census as white. And they were considered to be by the U.S. government and by most professors at Harvard and Yale to be part of this new thing called the Caucasian race. So the Caucasian race in the United States was invented in World War II um, so that we could have a unified fighting force and a disciplined home front. But um, and that, so that became, and that, yeah, comes, that was, and I was going to say, if you could expand on that it, that comes from the caucasus mountains of russia mm -hmm. yeah the caucasus very, very different white culture than <laughs> the irish flatlanders or, or highlanders or oh yeah i mean I culture it. versus uh yeah i don't even know what that would be out there i've been to the caucasus mountains that's where uh, joseph stalin was born it was in this little village in the caucasus mountains and i went once to see his to see this village in the house, the, the shack where he was born. But yeah, it's, it's, I mean, first of all, Russia, you know, most people consider Russia to be a pretty distinct culture from the rest of Europe. Um, even if it, and some people think it's not even part of Europe culturally. Uh, and then the Caucasus are, you know, this isolated mountain range way out there, um, deep in Russia, which are themselves, you know, not entirely Russian and have their own thing going on. Um, yeah, so but by World War II, it became sort of government mandated policy, actually, to consider everybody from the Caucasus Mountains in central Russia all the way to Norway and Sweden and Ireland and down to Spain and over to Greece and all the way back to the Caucasus as one race, meaning Caucasian race, including all the Jews, by the way, who are from those areas uh, from all of Europe. Yeah. So so nonetheless, uh, after the war, after World War II, there were a lot of those people, these assimilated, white, whitened immigrants um, in these unions like the UAW. Like your, was your dad management or was he in? No, he, uh, the most he wanted to be was a team leader because he didn't okay. want to be a union steward, even though people wanted him to because he said he couldn't defend the morons. <laughs> and because so he was in the he was in the UAW. Yeah, he was in the UAW yep. and actually he was protected because uh somehow when Jeep sold the Chrysler, they had uh bargained that their pension never be mixed with the other Chrysler employees. So it it benefited my dad, but I know like I remember towards the end it got really like crazy because of uh um Daimler buying them and pretty much doing some pretty uh legal, un unethical things with the company where they basically took out loans in Chrysler's name and just sucked that money out and then sold the company off and like kind of put it in dismay. It was, it was a weird, there's some weird financial things going on, but, um, not to get too off topic, but yeah, he yeah, was, no. in, yeah, it's he, on topic. Okay. Yeah. He, yeah. It's on topic. So, so there were two things going on in the, in the UAW and see, people don't understand this. I mean, be, and I don't blame them because it's, it's nearly irrelevant now, but you, the unions in the 1950s and 60s and 70s were huge, big deal. 35% of the workforce total in the United States was unionized, was in a union in that period. Um, they were, they're, they're still actually pretty powerful in the electoral process. I mean, you know, look at the donations that SEIU, SEIU gives to Democrats. It's there. I think they're the leading 
uh, donors in the elections among all of everybody. Like I think they outspend Goldman Sachs. I mean, they're yeah. So um, but then in the 50s, 60s and 70s, like you could not get elected president if you didn't have Walter Ruther's support. Walter Ruther was the head of the UAW, arguably, no, definitely the most important union leader in American history. Incredibly powerful. Um, and he he had two problems. So one was that he had all these black people coming up from the South and moving to Detroit to get jobs in the auto plants. And he had a membership that was overwhelmingly immigrant or second generation immigrant and didn't want to give up their jobs. Right. Mm -hmm. And had this legacy of being anti-black, um, being opposed to the scabs, you know, the replacement workers who were mostly black. And so he took the side for many, many years of the whites, the white immigrants, um, and refused to give, to allow blacks to have the good jobs, the skilled jobs, the high paying jobs and the plants until there was a massive grassroots black working class movement within the, within the UAW against Ruther and the leadership of the, of the union in the 1960s, which the eventually they eventually won. And so if you look at the UAW since the 1970s, you know, it's been mostly into essentially in, integrated, but that was against the wishes of Walter Ruther. Now, why was Walter Ruther opposed to integrating these black workers into the plants and how could he have it? How could he be able to make that decision about employment? Because he and the leaders of the unions in the thirties, forties and fifties and the CIO in the industrial unions were interested in, and they used this term, they used this term. They were interested in establishing corporatism, mm. corporatism, not just in their industries like auto and rubber and steel. Um, but in the economy as a whole, what was corporatism to them? It was the, the co-management of the economy from the shop floor of a factory all the way to economic planning offices in Washington, DC, um, by business owners. So they weren't anti-capitalist. They still wanted profit, you know, a profit system and private ownership, business owners, government officials, and union leaders themselves. So they wanted this tripartite corporatist economy. And they pretty much established that in their industry. So auto and steel in particular, and some other industries too, were, were essentially organized like that, certainly during the war and even afterwards. So Ruther really, really co-managed the UAW. I mean, sorry, co-managed the auto industry with Chrysler and Ford and GM for decades and the UAW, that's the legacy he left. And so that's what you were talking about with your dad. They were, they collaborate, they collaborate with the auto, um, companies, the UAW does in managing the workers. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a weird thing now too, Thad, because Jeep is still like one of the largest employees in Toledo. And I don't think they get any, I don't think they really pay any taxes to the city, which hurts the city. And then at the same time, they only like the most you can make there now is $15 an hour. And I think hmm. my dad finished, he was getting raises pretty steadily, but I think when he finished, he was only at like $28 an hour. Now he has like good retirement benefits, but he's like the last, like I, him and I talk about how he's kind of lucky because he's only, you know, 59, but he, he'd started at Jeep, uh, late mainly just because he was in a part of a totally different kind of union, which was the, the pipe fitters union, which is very still cutthroat because they have to, they actually have to compete for jobs. So like they'll, they'll compete with a general contractor. And so it's because I, I feel like there's still that form of competition there. 
they they're a little bit more um they it's it's a lot like they'll fire they'll run you off the job if if you're showing up late or mm -hmm. you have bad welds so it's it's mainly they'll protect you to an extent but if they have to run you off a job they will and it's it's very different it was like a different union culture for my dad when he went to jeep because a guy was i remember him telling me this story about they were trying to like some supervisor didn't like him was trying to punish him so he sent him to this one part and then when he got there the workers go yeah this is the best kept secret in the company we it doesn't take a lot of work but none of the supervisors like to come back here so we just we just work in two hour shifts and then the rest of the time you just kind of sit and hang out and it was like just this like goofy there's a lot more games being played in the factories than there was when you're working outside um you know welding uh the pipelines or anything like that so it, it's it was always interesting to me to see like because there's this there's this general um like i think a lot of people associate unions now with kind of talk like with a certain level of toxicness because it's again a lot of people feel like the unions are just protecting lazy workers and so <laughs> they can't they don't have any bargaining agreements now in a, in a lot of ways so they don't have to compete so i'm not sure what what uh what your thoughts are about that random random bit of information um, spewed out there yeah i mean they certainly can function in that way and they often do um so yeah i used to be pro-union i'm basically anti-union union now yeah. i mean i i think um but so here's the deal i mean the, the, the basic function of a union, right, is to establish a, cart a cartel of labor, right, within yeah. a, either a, a particular shop, meaning a particular business or in an industry as a whole, right? It's a cartel. It's a monopoly, right? We control the, the, labor, the labor supply and the labor demand here, right? So meaning that we, can, we control the, the wages, basically, that you pay. Um, well, that requires at the end of the day physical coercion right or the threat of physical violence how do you stop how do you stop the employer from firing you and replacing you with non-union workers who are willing to to work for less wages right at the end of the day you got to have a picket line and you have to physically block people from coming into that shop right um and that's what the history of work unions were um until the 1960s really and even since then there's been Many, many instances of essentially violence on picket lines or blockades, you know, uh, of these places of work to keep people from replacing them like they did to the black workers who were trying to replace the, the Italian workers and the steel factories back in the day in the 30s. Yeah, that I mean, that's what when I came to that realization, I was like, yeah, because I was thinking about unionizing adjunct faculty, yeah. and, which is actually a thing. You know, there is a thing going on now. They're trying to add, uh, organize adjunct faculty. And I was like, okay guys, so how are we going to do this? I mean, you do understand because it's all a bunch of like egghead kids from, you know, boarding schools and stuff, the adjunct faculty. Um, they're all, they all went to fancy colleges and boarding schools. Uh, so they have no, like they just, to them, labor is just like a social justice, you know, yeah. it's just unions are about social justice. They're just good. They never think through these things. Yeah. I said, yeah, let's think through this. So if we have a union in Occidental college, right. And we say to the president of the college, hey, you're going to pay us, you know, you're going to pay us X dollars. <laughs> what, how, how are we going to enforce that? Right. All we're going to be doing is sort of asking him, what's the difference between just asking him for a raise and making him, making him give us a raise. And they didn't have any answer to me. I said, I'll tell you what the answer is. The only, an the only answer is we have to stop him from being able to replace us. And now how are we going to do that? Well, we could go ask, we could go ask 
all the other adjunct faculty in Los Angeles, all the other recently uh, recent PhDs who are unemployed, we could ask them nicely not to replace us. But again, we're just we're just sort of uh, in both cases, we're just asking for charity, right? The only way to actually stop this from happening, the only way to enforce this and make sure that we get higher wages in this way is to physically, physically block those people from coming here and taking our jobs. We, that's what picket lines are. That's, how, that's why they were formed. It's not just symbolic. These moronic leftists think that picket lines are just sort of like this symbolic, you know, testimony <laughs> about, you know, victims seeking redress, you know, against the capitalist oppressors. No, they were, they're physical, they were established as physical barriers to keep scabs out. Think about it. That's what a picket line is. If you try to cross the picket line, you would get physically blocked and sometimes you get beaten up if you kept trying to push your way through to take that job. So that's that's a nasty business, right? And it ends up, it requires, it requires at least the threat of violence against your fellow working class people. It requires that. Yeah. Yep. That's kind of a... So in a way, unions could have kind of been the start of the war amongst the working class. In reality, I think. Oh yeah, I th- I think it's um, it's just always, it's just always fascinating to me, man. Because I think because uh, it's something else too. And I read and Thomas Sowell covered this in his book was it wasn't just the the southern blacks that they were trying to keep out too. It's also the southern whites coming up because they didn't sure they didn't like their culture. They didn't like how they were. I mean. They didn't like how much they were in the body, pretty much. And I think... Uh, yeah. yeah. They, and, well, they were cheap labor. Yeah. Because they were of the body, right? Because Absolutely. they hadn't disciplined themselves and hadn't learned all these... You know, learning a skill requires a lot of discipline. And I'm not opposed to learning skills, but it just simply requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of rational thought, right? Yeah. And poor blacks and poor whites from the South simply hadn't gone through that process yet. And No, they were, were just always in survival. Like I, I just yeah. came up from Kentucky. I was in Kentucky this weekend with my grandfather, and he was. I was driving him around the haulers, as he calls them, and he was just showing me like from where, like he he grew up in this area called Buffalo Horn, which is more rural than uh, Louisa, and it's like the mailing address is West Virginia, but they're in a, a Kentucky county. It's just kind of this weird area, and he. I mean, they were literally, I think there was like 16 kids in a small house that they had this little, they had built like another little house for half of them to live in the other. And he came up on a train to, to Toledo to work. And it was pretty much, he, he said they were just looking for weak minds and a strong back. Mm-hmm. And that, and that was, so he got a job and he didn't think he could get medically approved cause he can't fully move his right arm, but it, he just hustled and figured if he just would work up until the point where he got a physical if he was already doing the job they couldn't turn him down and that's how it worked out so it's yeah. it's um it's interesting to to just think about like it wasn't that long ago and now we have that you know people were coming up because it's well they were trying to es- essentially escape the poor parts of america so in a way these people from the south were immigrants within their own country because it's mm-hmm. of, of culture so I was going to say, I was going to say your people, uh, the people from Kentucky, from the haulers, yeah. they're Mexican. They're Mexican. They're the same as Mexicans now, at least in the way that we think of them. Right. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, it's funny because Gustavo Ariana, who was just on my podcast, who's a, he's a Mexican American. He was the editor of the Orange County Weekly and journalist, smart guy. But he, he said the same thing. He says he loves, he hangs out. 
I forget why, but he has somebody like some family or something in Tennessee and he loves going there and hanging out in Tennessee. And I was like, really? Yeah. He said, yeah. He said, oh, totally. We get each other. We're very similar. You know, the rednecks in Tennessee and, and us Mexican Americans. Um, yeah. Um, and so that's why, that's why the workers who had gone through the industrializing process, which is psychological, right? As much as yeah. it is economic, um, didn't want to, wanted to stop those people from coming up into the North. Right. And that's why, here you go. Um, speaking of unions and racism, that's why the, all of the major labor unions until about five minutes ago <laughs> opposed immigration from Mexico and not just by making statements, but like severely, like violently in many cases. So, you know, who coined, here you go. You know, who coined the term illegal immigrant no. was C Cesar Chavez. Wow. Cesar Chavez not only talked about the illegals, he also set up the first, um, who are the guys on the border um, who do the vigilante patrolling of the border along uh, the minute, Minutemen? I think so. Yeah, I forget their yeah, name. Yeah, the, min the Minutemen, yeah. He preceded them. In the 1960s, he had United Farm Worker workers. These were Mexican-Americans or Mexicans, right? But they were American Union members and leaders. He had them set up camps all along the border with guns, and they would stop the, the immigrants from coming over the border because of course, what were they doing? They were protecting their jobs from this cheap labor, yeah. this cheap, cheap, undisciplined labor. Not only that, Cesar Chavez, and you can Google this, you know, Mr. Hero of the left, what went on a national media tour talking about the illegals, he called it the illegals campaign, his Uf, US, his UFW, he was the president of the UFW had this illegals campaign, which involved, um, as I said, patrolling the border and spying on, they were the first ice. They were spying on illegal immigrants who worked in the fields and turning them into immigration authorities and the cops and helping them get deported. He used the word wetbacks. He made wetback a popular term. People, a lot of whites, a lot of gringos hadn't even heard the term wetback until Cesar Chavez made it popular. He talked about the wetbacks and the, and the illegals who were the, as the major threat to working the workers of the United States and the AFL CIO supported him and the AFL CIO and the unions generally have been anti-immigrant since day one, since all the way back in the 19th century, all the way up until really still even now. I mean, if you, if you look a little closer, only the SEIU I think is officially pro-immigration and that's only because most of its membership is immigrant. But, um, oh yeah, but it's, it's not because they're evil. I mean, there's a good economic reason for it, right? I mean, they're competing with cheap labor. So that's Bernie Sanders, by the way. So Bernie Sanders comes out of the, the sort of labor left is what we call it. And you know, Bernie's position on immigration, right? It's like, no, we gotta, I mean, we gotta be nice to them once we're, once they're here, but we gotta keep them from coming out here because American workers wages are suffering. And so he's been anti-immigrant. He voted for the Really, it's the wall before it was called the wall that we actually have on the border. He's been an, an anti-immigrant hawk his entire career. Um, and he thinks that open borders, he calls it a Koch brothers conspiracy, you know, because it's it's serving the capitalists. So, yeah, I oh, yeah, I don't know if he's that far off of it being a Koch brothers conspiracy. <laughs> open borders? <laughs> yeah, because the Koch brothers are pretty powerful, man. And they, uh, well, a, okay. 
You're right. Because you know what? I have, I am both open borders and I have taken Koch brothers money. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Well, that is I, why I believe. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> like I, 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 I see both arguments, man. Like to me, I think borders, I mean, borders, I, I, I can't see how they can be around much longer, but like to me, it's, I mean, I'm, it's, I, it's kind of weird. Like I, I dance on the line. Like usually I'm, I'm definitely open borders. It's like, well, you know, if, if you don't want to, I think a lot of times people get upset because the, I mean, I, there's something Wendell Berry said, uh, Sorry. in one of his books, like people like we, we can't, we, we can't handle all of the immigrants that want to move here because of our elaborate lifestyles. But that's the same exact, cause we can't even like really afford the resources for our own lifestyles now. But he said, but that's exactly why all the immigrants want to be here. So it's like a weird, and it's in it. And I think it's, you know, people, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Like I'm not opposed to somebody that sees all the gold that we lay, leave laying on the ground and works their ass off and, and makes a lot of money and, you know, does, you know, just, just appreciates all the opportunities that we're given here. And I think, uh, so like part of me is, is totally on board with, you know, who cares? And then other parts of me, like, just are kind of like, well, we do still have borders. So maybe we should be conscious of immigration. So I, I, I kind of see both arguments and I, and I, and I, I don't hate on the people that get here and play the game better than the natives. Um, but at the same time, I, I get why, where the natives are coming from. So I, I don't know. I haven't really made a, a decision about it. Yeah. So if I were a gardener in San Diego, I'd yeah. be totally, I'd be totally anti-immigration. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of them are, it's called, it's actually a phenomenon that sociologists who study immigration, um, have called pulling up the ladder at yeah. that every, every wave of immigrants has, has pulled up the ladder has been mostly anti-immigrant once they got here. Yeah. <laughs> um, makes sense. But the thing is, and that's, I don't even, I'm not even necessarily opposed to them making, taking that position. Cause it, of course, I mean, why would you, why would you want something that's going to hurt you? Um, but, um, but when they make moral claims is when I, I, I Oh leave. yeah, I it's, agree. The idea that I, by virtue simply of the dumb luck of being born in this country have the right to stop people from living here, from crossing that border, even if it's crossing the border in Florida, which I've never even been to and is more than 3000 miles from where I've lived. Right. I mean, it, it's just, it's absurd, but people actually believe that that's, that's underlying the whole thing, right? Americans mm -hmm. generally, and they certainly talk this way, um, believe that they have this sort of fundamental inalienable right to stop people from particular people from moving to particular places on this planet. It's pretty amazing if you step back and think about that, right? Yeah. What, mor in, yeah. In, what in, moral claim do you have there, buddy? Well, especially <laughs> too, because as our, with our United States passport, we can go anywhere for the most part. Um, and we get, we automatically get like a free six months to hang out in any country we want to. And then mm -hmm. if stuff ever goes down, we just call the U S embassy and they get us out of the country for free. So I think right. it's, it's a very, like people are like, you know, they're just, they don't want to pay in the system. They want the same benefits we have. It's like, well, yeah, if you were on the other side of the equation, why wouldn't you? Like, why yeah. wouldn't you want that? And I think, I think people, I, I mean, I, I, I a hundred percent agree with you. Like, I think morality is, I think morality is kind of disgusting in a lot of ways just because it's, it's why it's, it's people just use it to feel better about themselves or justify whatever 
shitty <laughs> behaviors they have, I feel like, or or just to feel good because they they it, to me it's like a it's a crutch that people use instead of actually dealing with themselves. And uh, I I don't I I I'm I'm 100 on board with you. I think if if you want to say I don't like Im- immigration because it it hurts me, I'm totally okay with that if you're honest sure. about it. But if you're yeah. just trying to say, well, it's immoral for them to break our laws and come here, it's like <laughs> exactly no, that's well, that's bullshit. Well, these are moral claims are often absurd if you just poke at them a little bit. So here you go. So my son is 16 years old right now. Um, he has contributed jack shit to this country in, in, by anybody's measure, right? He's done nothing really <laughs> of value. <laughs> I mean, that the you know, for the country as such. And so two years from now, um, I'm pretty sure he'll be in pretty much the same position. <laughs> um, and he will be able to vote to stop a 50 year old person, you know, who's worked their entire life from crossing from Tijuana into San Diego because of why, but what does he, what, uh, from where, where does he derive his moral authority? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you know, oh, because his father worked really hard. No, look who his father is. His father is this fucking jackass intellectual <laughs> who talks about how shitty the United States is. I mean, he's contributed less than this 18 year old kid has. So basically how on earth does this kid or me or you or anyone simply by the dumb luck of having been born here, have the right to stop someone from moving. Yeah. Come on. It's amazing to well, think that. Well, and yeah. I and I always think the same thing when when people talk about like cuz we do have it so good in this country that that's why it, it, like it's so comical when people flip off flip out about Donald Trump. It's like Jesus Christ, like 20, you know, when our grandparents were growing up or your parents, it was pretty rare to be able to go to a grocery store and just buy your food. I mean, it's it's it, that that is something that's happened within the last hundred years to be able to have so much choice with food, and now and most of their food gets thrown away. And I mean, that's real privilege. I mean, and it's it's so <laughs> funny because people, you know, they're I I even see. I mean, I I see it with you know because I'm a small scale farmer. Like people come into this with these these ideals of I'm gonna I live in a food desert and I want to give back. And then guess what? You actually start doing it, and it's like. These people don't give a shit. They're pretty happy to just go and drink Mountain Dew and eat Doritos. Like they mm-hmm. don't like don't force your values on somebody else. If you want to make a difference, to me, put your values in your back pocket and, and do it do it in business or actually just do it. You know what I mean? Like like what you're doing with Renegade mm-hmm. University. Like what like if you just complained about I don't like the universities. Like it's, you know, that was something Jeff Bezos said that really registered with me is complaining's never been a very good business strategy. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and it's, I don't, I don't totally like Jeff Bezos, but it's, it's a solid point. I mean, like if, if you just want to complain about something, you know, it's, you're not really being constructive. Like, why don't you do something about it? And I think that's, um, and that's kind of the attitude the immigrants have is they're like, yeah, I don't like being poor. So I'm going to move here and 30 of us are going to live in a one bedroom apartment and, run yep. a restaurant so it's and there's and by the way what people will often say in response to you is that well they just can't because of the structure because of the system it makes it impossible and to that i say yeah look at history so there is not a moment in history ever when the poorest most powerless people haven't changed their own lives radically and changed the world radically there's never been i mean if you think that white supremacy is stopping you from changing your life then tell that to south africans please right i mean they had they had apartheid not long ago that was enforced um, with, you know, machine guns big time and torture and prisons and all the rest of it. They killed people. And only 20 years ago, you know, did those people, arguably the most powerless people on the planet, 
took control of the entire country. Right. And they still to this day run the government. You know, the black, the South African government is black and it's the government in South Africa is almost entirely people who used to live in the townships. And, you know, so and that's just one example of many, many, many. But you can even look inside the United States. I mean, there are countless people who were born in the projects and now are successful and wealthy and doing different things. I mean, again, yeah, there are many, many structures, believe me. I mean, and there is such a thing as being born black and having that being, you know, that's a, there's a built in disadvantage in certain ways for sure. Um, but that's true for everyone. And there have been bigger disadvantages that people have been born with elsewhere and in history. And they have never heard of a case, including slaves, by the way, including slaves, people who are actually enslaved, um, not literally not being able to improve their own life in major, major radical ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, and certainly in 2017, the United States, give me a break. I mean, yeah, of course there are impediments that you're born with. And I had by, you know, because of the family I was born into and the circumstances I was born into, sure, it was a shorter step for me to get to where I am now than it would be if you were born in uh, the projects in uh, East Oakland, no doubt. But I happen to know, literally, I happen to know uh, people who are now professors in universities who were born in the projects, not in, not in Oakland, but in Southside Chicago. <laughs> so, Glenn you know, it's, it, well, I didn't, wasn't even thinking of Glenn. I mean, he wasn't born in the projects, but yeah, he's from the South side. But yeah, no, I have a friend, um, Daryl Scott who taught at Columbia when I was there and he, he was from the projects in, in South side Chicago. Did he lean, was, was he more conservative leaning? That's my question. That's, uh, I'm nope, no, nope, not really. No, no. Daryl's, uh, no, he's like a, I guess you'd call him like a left liberal with a black nationalist tinge. <laughs> so um, but yeah, he's, he's not, not the, uh, he's not the, uh, cause that was something else we were talking about, um, that I wanted to actually wanted to talk about blackness too. Um, and I think, because I think at for black intellectuals, if you don't go far left, it's like you're considered a conservative, like. John McWhorters and Glenn Lowry, we were talking about, they're not real conservatives, but they're considered conservative mm. because they speak out against what, you know, well, this is the pop, this is the, this is the black intellectual that we're going to idolize, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and those two guys criticize him, and it's, and it's, um, but that's not what you do, like, that's not acceptable behavior within yeah. that, that, uh, that line of thinking. Well, so... Yeah, if you want to drill down on this a little bit, I mean, um, so Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter are, uh, they are actually, Camille and I were actually talking about this. They're, they're actually old school progressives, um, meaning like pre-World War II progressives. So that they, Glenn Lowry, his answer to black unemployment is public works projects. Like he wants the government to employ all the black men in this country. So it's kind of New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt kind of liberalism. Um, but as you know, and anybody who has read my book knows the new deal was fiercely culturally conservative, re even really reactionary and wanted, wanted to, one of the one of the projects, maybe the main project behind the public works projects of the new deal was to make all these, um, ragamuffin immigrant slacken workers into good disciplined, upstanding American citizens. Um, and also into good soldiers so that they could, and guess what just happened and guess what happened to them right after the new deal, right? They got shipped off to Europe and the Pacific ocean to fight and die in a war. Uh, so it worked. <laughs> they built all, they built all the tanks and then went over to Germany and drove those tanks. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, I didn't get the chance to get into that when I interviewed Glenn and I kind of wish I had, I would like to do that someday, but so he's a uh, conservative in that way for sure. And yeah. he's very much like he's concerned. He thinks, you know, the problem with the anti-Trump stuff is that it is, what does he say? Um, it is degrading the office of the president. <laughs> Whereas well, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah, exactly. That's why I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, that is a, that's a weird phenomenon too. Cause I don't personally, like, I think Donald Trump is entertaining. And I think <laughs> to me, it's, it's, it's such a joke anymore anyway. So it's like, to me, he's like the president everybody deserves. Because I think most people that have voted for him didn't even like his politics. They just were like, it was an FU to the establishment. And Yeah, I, th- I think he's very funny, except when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's not funny. But I think that it's pretty damn hilarious. And I'd say immigration, too. Although, on immigration, according to the evidence so far, he is actually a little easier or better <laughs> immigration than Obama was. Um, so it's at, at, at worst status quo on immigration. Uh, but in terms of like, you know, domestic policymaking, he's a complete failure and it's awesome. I mean, that's what we want. That's what we want in a president. That's, that was kind of my perspective yeah. too. And like, I remember somebody <laughs> said, yeah, that nothing's going to get done. I'm like, is mm-hmm. that a bad thing? <laughs> right. Like, but I, I still do think that I think, you know, and I think I've heard you mention this, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be Trump that puts in a single payer healthcare system. Maybe mm. not this term, but I think the second term, because I, I don't think anybody's going to beat him in 2020. Man, thinking, yeah, you know, it's funny. Last night, uh, I had a new, a new perspective on healthcare in this country. Uh, so yeah, I was, I was working out at the gym and there's a, one of the, fighters we have like we have two pro fighters at our gym and funny enough his name is thad but um <laughs> he goes by jake <laughs> but his middle name is thaddeus or no his, his first name is thaddeus but he goes by jake but anyway so i was hanging out with him and i was like god man i haven't seen you around what's been going on with you he said yeah i just blew out both knees and i was like god damn really he said yeah but i got him scoped so i'm all good now and i said wow that's cool he said yeah I, I was able to get insurance so i could get my knees scoped and uh i was like that's great and he said yeah you know because I said, that's good because you were on the road to, you were training for a, to fight last time I saw you. He was like, yeah. And he said, yeah, what I was thinking of doing at that time was I was going to fight so that I could get uh, my knees done and have the promotion pay for it because I didn't have insurance. Oh, so wow. if you get, if you get hurt, if you get hurt during a fight, the promotion almost always is legally obligated. They sign, that's part of the contract. You get, they get, they have, they're obligated to uh, fix it, whatever it is. So he said that it is common for MMA fighters to do that, to go and to take a fight with an injury and then, and then pretend that the injury came from the fight and then have a, the promotion pay for the surgery. Um, <laughs> that's why, uh, but that's why Cain Velasquez got pulled from that fight. His last fight with Fabricio, cause he was saying that he felt numbness and, uh, I don't think the promotion wanted to pay for it because if he would have yeah. reported it after the fact, they would have had to pay for it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The UFC's on the hook. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, so clearly, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, I think, I think that the Republican alternative would have been even worse than Obamacare, but clearly Obamacare is blowing up. And even if it weren't blowing up, I mean, you still have people pretending to get hurt in a fucking cage fight so that they can get uh, surgery. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a nightmare. I think it's possible, but you know, Trump was for single pair at one point. Yeah, he was also yeah. for uh, yeah. assault rifle bans. 
So I, I think mm-hmm. I could definitely see, and, and it's kind of the way that um, American politicians do it anyways. Like you're more Republican candidate takes away rights of what their base likes. And then same thing with Democrats. I mean, like think about how many civil rights, you know, Obama was supposed to be this civil rights attorney or constitutional attorney. And, and you said a long time ago, if people just read what he was writing, it totally makes sense what he did. Because oh, yeah. he, he, he fell in line with everything he was writing, but when he'd get up and speak, he would say something completely different. Right. Just follow, as I said about Obama, just, and also just follow the logic of his politics, you know, his stated politics. He said, I want America to lead the world. And I want, you know, he, he understood that that meant a, a massive and even bigger military for one thing. So, yes, in terms of logical progression and following things to their logical conclusion, if you take Bernie Sanders's politics and follow them to their logical conclusion and you take Trump's politics and do the same, they end up in the same place. Yeah. So they end up with closed borders, right? They, you end up with an economy that is built around the factory system, right? They're both nostalgic for factories. They want people working in factories, high paying factory jobs. Um, I don't know what Trump's position on unions is, but I wouldn't be surprised if he'd be perfectly happy with the kinds of unions we've had, like the UAW, who collaborate with business. Um, in fact, I bet there are unions in his own industries that do that. Um, and then, you know, trade. They want to shut down trade, both of them. Um, he, Trump's been for single payer. Bernie's single payer. Uh, they're both less interested in imperialist adventures but they are both on record as being for wiping out ISIS with drones and whatever means necessary, including special ops. Bernie Sanders has consistently supported the war on terror. Yeah. <laughs> They're both pro-Israel uh, to the T. To the I mean, Bernie's never wavered from his support for Israel. Um, the only difference yeah. is Bernie didn't say you can grab him by the pussy. Yeah, I mean, right. The only difference is that Bernie's a good guy and Trump's a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently. Yeah. In the yeah. eyes of the media, something yeah. Nathan, uh, he posted something on Facebook like CNN wants us to be concerned with the fact that Donald Trump drinks too much diet pop, asks for two scoops of ice cream and everybody else only asks for one mm-hmm. and likes likes something else. And it's just like such such dumb shit. It's It's so entertaining mm-hmm. that people when they get so upset with Trump, they're just playing his game. You know what I said about Trump, right? Well, you, say this you said he's the first black and gay president. Correct. That is correct. Yeah, and I and I 100% agree. <laughs> oh, like good. I, I, yeah, like I mean, like how flamboyant <laughs> Trump dresses. Like that's that's actually a oh. reason why my grandfather hates Donald Trump, which was interesting, and it, mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with um, his politics. It had everything to do with who he was as a person. He's like, of course, he's so flashy. I don't like any of that shit. And Bill Clinton was the greatest president ever. <laughs> Cause like my grandpa still like, I mean, he just worked. He doesn't, he doesn't have any, uh, he can't, he doesn't understand like bubbles, like economic bubbles. Like to him, it's work was good then. So it must've been Bill Clinton being responsible for it. And a lot of union guys did that, but there was, man, for my family, typically the guys that were in unions, um, that still worked union jobs, voted Democrat. And then the, the other guys that didn't voted Republican, but this year pretty much everyone voted for Trump. Um, oh, on really? the dad's side. Yeah. And it was like my uncle Scott, like, uh, he was like, yeah, I get that. He's a racist, this and that. I'm like, well, what actually did he say that was racist or what is he in it? And he couldn't answer it. He goes, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not attacking you for voting for him. I just think it's funny. You guys finally all voted for the same. 
And it's because, and I think a lot of union people kind of got hip to, you know, yeah. the excise tax for their Cadillac healthcare sure. stuff. Sure. Yeah. And they want to, they want their jobs back in the factory. Yeah. You know? Which yeah. I don't think is still going to happen. I mean, I mean the, fa- the factory nostalgia of both Sanders and Trump was really stunning during the election. I mean, they both were constantly talking about how great it was when everybody worked in factories. They were going for the, <laughs> uh, the old people vote. I mean, that you was imagine it. that like that's your utopia. Yeah, we were working in factories again. Yeah, wow. which that takes me into like another topic. But I actually got to wrap up here. I got to move my, me too. I got to move my cooler. Can you come on again, Thad? We can talk some more um, sometime in the future. Sure. Uh, we might even be doing this in person sometime. That would be fairly great. soon. That'd be I'm, awesome. Uh, trying to put together a trip out there. Nice. You got a free place to stay here, buddy. Like cool, I uh, man. And I got pork, forest raised pork that I. I was going to say, yeah, I want some good, some good, um, you know, local produce. Oh yeah. I got you. I got you taken care of (laughs) Brett. I don't know if Brett told you, like, I was like, well, you got a free place to stay here. You can do your laundry and I'll make sure you eat good meals. Like we had a rabbit, locally harvested rabbit and everything. So we, yeah, I mean, I think food is, uh, I mean, decentralization of food. It was kind of like, this is a way for me to live my politics. So, Mm -hmm. cause that the food system is so. Uh, it's so it's so so fucked up that it was like well mm-hmm. I could bitch about it or I could do something about it so Man. but well thanks for coming on for anybody that doesn't know or doesn't follow your work check out Thad at just ThaddeusRussell.com has pretty much yep. everything that's it and uh, I'd highly recommend if you guys haven't checked out Thad's podcast um, it's unregistered it's one of my favorite shows personally you've you've done great interviews with. A lot of people, man, turned me on to Jim Goat. I can't believe I've never, I'd never heard of Jim Goat before your show. And yeah. I went down his rabbit hole and I don't agree <laughs> with, it's weird. I don't want to have to say I don't agree with him. I just think I know. He, he makes me think. <laughs> like he asks yeah, questions and I'll be like, well, I think if you read Thomas Sowell, Jim, you might get a lot of questions answered, but <laughs> he gets a lot more. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, you, you've had great guests on. I enjoy your show. And, and also too. Um, if people want to take your history courses, uh, I was a big fan of, uh, your postmodernism lecture. And then also, uh, the, uh, world war two, I mean, all your work is great. So I, I encourage everyone to sign up for your courses and also read your book, um, the renegade history of the United States. Thanks. Thanks, man. No, yeah. No problem, bud. But, uh, everyone, thanks again for tuning in and look forward to bringing you a show again here soon. Okay, guys, so that was Thaddeus Russell. Check out his podcast at uh, ThaddeusRussell.com. That's the best place. So before we go, I want to go over the affiliates and support Patreon once again. So if you all want to support the show, the best way to do that is go to Patreon.com slash Sample Hour and give me a dollar a month. So I'm asking for $12 a year. That's it, guys. I get enough of you giving me twelve dollars a year. I'll have money. I don't. I'm not good at. I'm not good at math in the head. Um, also, please go to naturesimagefarm.com. Check out all the nursery stock my good buddy Greg Burns has. Um, also, while you're at it, if you want to take a free pawpaw course, I still go to versaland.tv. So. Um, With all that being said, guys, there's a lot more affiliates in the show notes. There's plenty of ways you can support the show. Uh, But 
I always like to shout out Greg Burns, naturesimagefarm.com. Uh, anyways, guys, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.